this week, I was uh, I was reading kind of a funny story about uh, about Michael Jordan. Everybody in here knows who Michael Jordan is, the, the greatest basketball player of all time. Everybody says, you know, maybe it was Wilt. Come on, Wilt was heads and shoulders above everybody else. Of course, the guy can score a hundred points in a game, uh, but he wasn't, you know, just an average size for a basketball player. Uh, and had the kind of games that Jordan had. So I was reading this story from his autobiography called Driven From Within, and Michael Jordan tells this story about a time when he was over at a close friend's house, uh, and they were getting ready to go out on the town, and Jordan decided, well, you know, it's a little bit cold out there. I need to borrow one of your, you know, something, you know, a jacket from you. So he asks his friend, uh, is it okay if I get a jacket out of your closet? And his friend says, yeah, of course. The closet's down the hall to the left in the bedroom. And so uh, Jordan goes down the hall to the, uh, to the bedroom and into the closet. And a few minutes later, Jordan comes out with a handful of Puma athletic gear. Uh, which he apparently had found in the closet. And, of course, uh, we, we all know that Jordan is famous for being a Nike representative. He, he's really the one who gave Nike the big boost in the 80s. Uh, you know, it's got to be the shoes, if, for those of you who are old. Those of you who are young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I know. But so what he does is he comes out with this, this handful, this armful of Puma gear, and he dumps it on the kitchen floor, and he heads back to the bedroom, only to return a few minutes later with Puma gear. See, it turns out that, yeah, Jordan, you know, being this Nike rep, had given him some Nike clothes, but this guy was also friends with Ralph Sampson, who was a representative for Puma, and he had done the same thing, so he had given him all this athletic uh, apparel as well. So once all the Puma gear was cleared out of his friend's closet, Jordan uh, went through the drawers in the kitchen, found a butcher knife, <laughs> no joke, he, he found a butcher knife, and he proceeded to rip and cut all this Puma gear to shreds. And once he had destroyed all this Puma gear, he, he picked it up again, he gathered it up himself, and brought it outside to a trash dumpster for disposal. And when he returned, he said to his friend, hey dude, call my Nike rep t uh, tomorrow and tell him to replace all of this, but don't ever let me see you in anything other than Nike. You can't ride the fence. That's from page 110 of Driven From Within. And that's kind of a Kind of a weird story, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine how awkward that would have been? I mean, I can't personally imagine doing that to any of you guys. Well, maybe one or two of you. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine that, uh, doing that to anyone, no matter how uh, dedicated or hardcore I, I am toward a particular brand of clothing. And I'm thankful that none of you have come into my house and done that to me because I'm not sure that I could just stand by casually and, and quietly as Michael Jordan's friend had. Uh, and, and even if you wanted to do something like that, the truth is you're probably too nice. Um, or, or you think, you know, this guy's got a goatee and he's bald. And Christina was telling me that, you know, about this study the other day that said that bald men are perceived as tougher. So maybe that's why you haven't done it to me. But hopefully it's because you want to keep me as a friend who trusts you. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird story. But really, this is a lesson in what I would call idle destruction. Idle destruction. Really, all Jordan was doing was demonstrating this 100% sold-out commitment to what he had committed himself to. And so just to cut to the chase here, that's the type of commitment that God asks for from us as well. How dare we just make room for him in our closet? when he asks for and deserves nothing less than the whole thing. Now, as we conclude our study 
of Nehemiah today, we should remember that after 12 years of being down in Jerusalem, seeing the, overseeing the restoration of the city, he'd left Jerusalem to go and visit King Artaxerxes. And when he returned, he found that Eliashib, the priest, had compromised and compromised very badly. He had, uh, he, he had enough of his closet devoted to God that, you know, if he, if he really needed to, you know, if the situation demanded it, he could throw something on real quick. But truth be told, Eliashib's actions revealed that he really hated wearing those clothes. And so he allowed Tobiah, the Ammonite, remember he represents the flesh, he allowed Tobiah to move into the storage space in the temple that was supposed to have been devoted, set aside, for the, the things that the temple needed to keep going. But that was only the first place that Nehemiah had returned. He'd only gone to the temple. Uh, he cleansed it. Uh, Nehemiah, remember, he represents kind of a Christ figure in that uh, the, the, the temple represents the place where God wants to dwell. And when it's corrupted, Jesus needs to come in and clean it. And that's what Nehemiah did with the temple. But what we're going to see today is that this compromise that we saw in Eliashib is contagious. And that while Eliashib, yeah, he, he was the first person to be discovered, that was probably because the first place that Nehemiah went when he came back into town was the temple. He, he was going to, 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 to pray or to, to give, uh, you know, give something to God. Give some time to God, if nothing else. But that, that was the first place that he went. But as he goes out, he sees that the people have followed suit, and they've compromised as well. He's reestablished order in the temple, but that was just the first place that he went. Now he's going to find out that this contagious compromise has spread through the city like a bad case of foot fungus in a guy's locker room in high school. Yeah, we all know where that is. So we pick it up with verse 15, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 15, if you've got a Bible with you. If you don't, uh, there should be some in the seats in front of you. We pick it up with uh, verses 15 and 16. Nehemiah writes, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Now remember, the, the Sabbath observance was supposed to start Friday at sundown, and it was supposed to go until Saturday at sundown. And if that's the type of system that you're adhering to, uh, if you don't plan ahead, uh, it can cause a serious disturbance in your day. Uh, because, you know, we go out to eat after, uh, after service or whatever, but they couldn't do that because there's no restaurant where somebody's open to serve them because those people are supposed to be resting. So, uh, so yeah, it can put a hindrance in your day if you haven't planned ahead for it. But keep in mind that back in chapter 10, the people had sworn an oath of blessing and cursing to uphold the Sabbath. Not just the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. And yet, here we see that they have clearly broken, they've smashed that vow. Uh, of all those vows that they made back in chapter 10, remember there were six of them, uh, they haven't been able to uphold even a single one of them. And so Nehemiah finds that the city of Jerusalem looks the same on the Sabbath day as it does on every other day of the week. Instead of it looking like, wow, you know, people are resting today, it was just as busy as it is on 
on Wednesday or Monday or whenever. Uh, he finds that the city looks just the same in terms of trade and commerce. Farmers are selling their, uh, their produce. They're working with merchants to import it into the city. And these people from Tyre are importing loads of fish and other merchandise, just miscellaneous stuff, into the city on this day that's supposed to be set aside for a very, very important reason. Rest. We're going to get to that in a minute. But just like you did with the people who were supposed to have been uh, taking care of the temple, Nehemiah isn't afraid to give these people a piece of his mind. So we continue in verses 17 and 18. He says, Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now I think it would probably be a candidate for understatement of the year to say that Nehemiah is a little irritated here. Uh, he's a little bit upset. No, he's, he's mad. Uh, and this just isn't a case of... of you know, simply breaking the law. You know, Nehemiah knows that everybody is going to break the law. All 600 plus commands in there are impossible to uphold unless your name is Jesus, um, in which case there's only one Jesus that ever did it, by the way, Jesus. Uh-uh. Um, so, so this is a case of people not just breaking the law, but it's a case of flagrant disobedience. It's not just disobedience, it's taking it to a different level. We all recognize uh, the difference between disobedience, which in and of itself is bad enough, and flagrant disobedience. Uh, you know, it works the same way in basketball uh, with flagrant fouls. If you guys watch basketball, of course, you know, it's uh, finals, coming up on the finals, so everybody's watching basketball right now. But it used to be that in the NBA, uh, you could practically murder a guy, uh, you know, just come this close to murdering a guy as he's got an open breakaway, and all the other team would get is a foul. They'd get two free throws, and that was it. It wasn't taken all that seriously if you really uh, set out to hurt somebody on an open breakaway. Uh, but it started getting out of control, especially when Shaquille O'Neal, you know, who's this monster of a guy and who can't make free throws. So these guys are getting the idea, hey, you know, as soon as he gets the ball, we foul him and, it, you know, we win the game. And, and that strategy worked for a while, um, but it started getting out of control because guys could get seriously hurt. And there was always the potential of injuring a guy badly enough that he wouldn't be able to continue playing in the game. So in the prime of uh, Michael Jordan's career, another guy who used to get just slaughtered on his way to the basket, they instituted what they called the flagrant foul, which was basically defined as a foul, you know, a foul by, by any other name, but it's an intentional foul which risks injuring members of the opposing team. And so a flagrant foul is, in a sense, just a, a regular foul, but it's much more serious than a regular foul because it's intentional and it can hurt somebody. So Nehemiah is calling technical foul here because, yes, it is breaking the law, but it's so, so deliberate. And not only that, but they're doing much more than just breaking their vow or breaking the law. Nehemiah tells them that they are inviting the wrath of God upon all of Judah by their actions. And he brings up history. You know, don't, didn't you guys learn anything from, from history? Don't you guys know what's happened in the ages past? That how they compromised and you know, just took baby steps and eventually were completely turned away from God? That's how sin works. 
That's how sin works. That's why he brings up history, because sin will give us this short-term selective memory. It teaches us to see things very, very selectively as a means of justifying it. And I can imagine, you know, they might be saying, what's the big deal? It's not hurting anything. It's not hurting anyone. And besides, what a stupid rule. Who really cares if I work on the Sabbath or if I don't? Uh, It's not hurting anybody, so why does it matter? Right? And a lot of the time, we tend to take that, atti- that same attitude toward God. But the, th- the fact is, it matters to God. That's why it matters. It matters to God. He never sets requirements of us that are arbitrary. He never gives us a command that's completely pointless. It, it, there's always a reason. He always has good reasons for everything that he does and everything that he instructs. Now, whether we understand exactly what those reasons are, that's a totally different story, totally different ballgame. We don't always understand everything that he instructs us to do or asks us to do. But it doesn't really matter if we understand why. It doesn't matter because our understanding is extremely limited. The fact that God is good, always good, and that he's sovereign, that is, that he's got absolutely everything under control all the time, that alone is a good enough reason to abide by the rules that he sets. But as we're going to see here in a moment, there are some very good reasons for the command to observe the Sabbath. First, let's take, at some of the, uh, let's take a look at some of the changes that Nehemiah is going to put into action here. We read in verses 19 uh, through the beginning of uh, verse 22. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, in other words, this is Friday evening, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. Let's go ahead and stop there. So ultimately, what we see here is that the problem was, yes, it it was with all the people. All the people in the city are compromising, but the people who had been entrusted with this responsibility of watching the gates had definitely failed their responsibilities. They should have been the first ones to say, wait a minute, have stuff pass through on the Sabbath? Uh Uh-uh, not while I'm sitting here watching the gate. I know better. We've vowed not to do stuff like this. They had the responsibility to do that, but they had a lot to lose also. For example, the favor of the people, just for starters. And that's, that's a hard one for everybody. It always has been. It always will be. There's nothing new under the sun. It's always such a hard one for us to overcome. Gaining the favor of people. Like, a, you know, we don't like to be disliked. We don't like people to be mad at us. That's just our nature. We, we don't like that kind of stuff. So it becomes difficult for us. We want people to value us. We want people to like us. And so it's easy for that desire that we have to lure us Slowly, quickly, whatever, right in the compromise. It's so difficult to stand for righteousness when unrighteous people are pressuring us to do otherwise and we risk losing their favor. How important is popularity? 
It's apparently really important to most people because people risk their lives for it all the time. Look at how many tanning salons there are, even though there's this undeniable link between melanoma and tanning in a tanning bed. In fact, since tanning parlors started popping up, cases of melanoma have more than doubled for women ages 15 to 29. Why do they tan? Why do they go to these tanning parlors? It's because they think that it'll earn them favor in the eyes of some guy or with everybody else, that they, they'll, they'll receive favor. People will find them more attractive. One 16-year-old girl who was interviewed about why she goes to tanning salons said this. She said, quote, it may make my, sin, my skin wrinkle a little bit earlier, but I'm going to look good while I can. What a sad attitude that she doesn't feel beautiful enough just the way that she is, that she has to go and risk her life for popularity. So seeking the favor of the people was a huge obstacle, obviously, for the gatekeepers. It's a, it's a huge obstacle for us, too. Let's just be honest. It's a huge obstacle for us. But look at what Paul said. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, you can't mix the desire for the favor of God with the desire for the favor of people. You can't serve both at the same time because that's giving God less than 100%. Sometimes God will grant us favor with people, but it's not because we're intentionally seeking the favor of men and doing backflips and jumping through hoops to gain the favor of men. It's because we've earned God's favor and He stirs the heart of people. And they, in turn, give us favor. So Nehemiah's response, actually, is kind of funny. Keep in mind... Um, most scholars think that he was 50, 60, somewhere around there, years old, at this point when he comes back. So his response, literally translated, would be, if you do this again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And I don't think he was talking about praying for them. He's talking about, yeah, about giving these guys a beating that they won't forget. Um, he's saying, don't you even dare spend the night outside the city gates on the Sabbath or you'll get a, I'll, I will personally lay my hands on you. And you, you, you picture this 50 or 60 year old guy doing that. It, it's a little bit comical, you know, long beard, long hair, just looking crazy. And yeah, you run away, right? Uh, so Nehemiah replaces the gatekeepers with his servants, and he tells the Levites, go and purify yourselves so that you can come back and take the place of my servants. See, purification, they can't just say, okay, I purify myself, therefore I'm clean. It's about more than just external appearances. It's about more than just putting on the right garb or whatever. It's about cleaning our hearts, cleansing our hearts before God by recognizing our sin, by confessing our sin, and by turning away from our sin. Now, we might be, uh, be tempted to think that Nehemiah is just being a little bit silly here, and this is, this is pretty drastic. I mean, what's the big deal, right? But remember, remember what Paul told the Corinthians, uh, that the stories that, happened, uh, the stories that happened to Israel happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. We're not supposed to emulate, just in case anybody's wondering, we're not supposed to imitate or emulate Nehemiah in the sense that we go around and we physically threaten those who are compromising their faithfulness to God. The lesson here, remember, this is an illustration. The lesson here is to take sin seriously. Really, really seriously. Take action against it 
and restore holiness. It's just another picture of the futility of human devotion to God. It's the same lesson we get from Peter, James, and John. You know, Jesus says, hey, just watch guard for a little bit while I pray. And they're relying on the strength of their flesh, and so they fall asleep. The futility of human devotion to God. It's what they've been, that's what they were relying on, rather than the power and the faithfulness of God to strengthen and uphold them. So Nehemiah brings this section of the passage to close with a prayer. He writes this in the second part of uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 22. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Now we need to understand that the lesson of this passage up to this point is not necessarily that we need to be observing the Sabbath in, in the strict literal sense where, you know, between uh, sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday, you know, that we're, we're worshiping. Uh, we're free to do so if we wish. I mean, if that's really something that you want to do, you're free to do it, but we're not obligated to worship on any particular day of the week. I mean, we know that there are still, to this day, there are a lot of groups out there that still uphold the Sabbath. They still think that you've got to do your worshiping on uh, on Saturday. For example, the Seventh-day Adventists, everybody is probably familiar with the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, you know, they, they still think that it's wicked to, uh, to fail to worship on Saturday. They think that it's evil to worship on, uh, on Sundays. But for what it's worth, uh, truth be told, the tradition of meeting to worship on Sundays started with the New Testament church who started meeting on Sundays to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. So this is the question that I, I want to give us at this point. Is it sinful to worship on Sunday? Is it sinful to worship on Sunday? And the answer to this might shock you. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. There is no right or wrong answer that applies to everyone here. But let's keep in mind what Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. He says, whatever is not from faith is sin. So there's a whole lot of gray area there. Should we read the King James Version? What's of faith? What's your movement of faith? What's the conviction on your heart? Should I listen to Christian music only? What's your heart? What's the conviction on your heart? Should you worship on the Sabbath? What's the conviction on your heart? Anytime you have a conviction in your heart that you believe the Holy Spirit has placed there and you do not act in accordance faithfully with that conviction, Paul's saying that is sin. Maybe that means not eating meat. I mean, there are several uh, Christian vegetarian groups out there. Uh, Maybe it means not drinking alcohol, even in the strictest moderation. Uh, And maybe it means uh, worshiping on the Sabbath, Saturday instead of on Sunday. But let's step back for just a moment and recall that the, the command to observe the Sabbath was given to Moses. It was part of the law of Moses, uh, which was given to whom? To Israel. It was only given to Israel. These commands weren't given to the Gentiles. The, the, the law of Moses, all 600 plus commands, weren't given to anybody except Israel. In fact, the, the law to observe the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that was not reemphasized in the New Testament. So what we have to do, then, is ask ourselves, what's the reason 
that God gave for observing the Sabbath? Does he tell us why he gives us the Sabbath? Because ultimately, I believe that the truth is that we do observe a Sabbath, whether that's on Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday, whatever day, you know, when we fulfill the purposes that the Sabbath was given. So what are the purposes for the Sabbath being given? And of course, at the heart of the, the, the Sabbath is this understanding that it's about something that we uh, think of and take seriously far too infrequently and, and, and far too lightly, and that is rest. Just the importance of rest. How do we avoid being burned out, finding ourselves just completely exhausted at the ends of our ropes? By resting. Thus, part of the reason that God gave the command to Israel was so that they wouldn't work themselves to death seven days a week like they had while they were enslaved in Egypt. So this concept of taking a day of rest is something that, honestly, our culture today knows very, very, very little about. Uh, something that we, we just don't take very seriously at all, but the statistics speak for themselves, man. People are burned out. People are exhausted. People need rest. They've taken too much upon themselves. Between 2007 and 2011, the number of people on anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications quadrupled. And that, was, that of course, was one of the most stressful times in, in, the, in the history of our nation, as, as we were uh, borderline uh, depression, recession for sure, but borderline depression. But those medications, for the most part, are just treating symptoms. They're not actually treating the ailment itself. We know that when we aren't rested, we become anxious. We become filled with, with anxiety. We become uh, irritable. We become stressed out. So rest Rest is just so important, and it's something that we just don't take so seriously a lot of the time. You know, four weeks ago, I was just telling Craig last week, four weeks ago, I, I went on this pastor's uh, retreat that went from Sunday afternoon until Tuesday morning. And, you know, like most pastors, I imagine, uh, at least every pastor I've talked to, their, their day of rest is Monday. That's really their, their Sabbath. That's their day of rest. And so I was expecting that, uh, uh, to have that on the Monday that we're at this retreat. In fact, I, I was counting on it. Instead, however, on Monday, we spent 16 straight hours together sharing life stories with one another. Uh, there was no time for rest. There was no time for relaxation or, or reflection. Uh, you know, and, and I don't get me wrong, I enjoy a good life story as much as anyone, but 16 hours? It's a little bit over the top, in my opinion. I, I, was, I was exhausted. At the end of the day, I was exhausted by the time I got home. I didn't get enough rest, and the result was that I spent the next three weeks just trying to, uh, just trying to catch up and fill my, my tank back up, so to speak, because I felt like I was just running on fumes. So I'm very protective of my day of rest every week, and that's exactly why. The command to observe the Sabbath meant that for every six days of work, we need one day of rest. Our bodies need it. Our minds need it, and more importantly, as we're going to see here in just a minute, our souls need it. And there are actually two reasons. There are actually two reasons that God gave 
the Sabbath, that he instituted the Sabbath. The first, which we're probably most familiar with, is found in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 to 11, we read, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we're supposed to rest after six days of work because God himself rested after six days of work. Now that might not seem to make a whole lot of sense. After all, we know that God is all-powerful, right? God's all-powerful. Why would God need to rest? Now there's the key. That's that's called a loaded question because there's a word in there that doesn't belong, and that is need. God didn't need to rest. He just did. God rested because he'd completed everything that he needed to complete. He'd done uh, everything that needed to be done. Everything that was done, that he finished in creation in those six days was completed, and so he was able to stop and rest. The obvious lesson for us is that we have to recognize our own need to rest from our weekly activities. There has to be a time when we just let go and be content with what we've accomplished. Without this day of rest, we are setting ourselves up for exhaustion. And when we set ourselves up for exhaustion, we're setting ourselves up to be absolutely miserable. You know, when I worked in in the casinos of of Las Vegas, I knew a lot of table games dealers who worked not just one job uh, as as a dealer, but two. So some days they were, you know, three days out of the week, four days out of the week, they were working 16 straight hours. That doesn't leave a lot of time to to get home. You know, that, that includes driving, plus driving to and from work, you know, plus any time that you might spend doing anything else so you don't get any rest. And these people, honestly, those are the most miserable. All dealers are pretty unhappy, to be honest with you. But the ones who are the most miserable, the most burned out, the most stressed out, the most filled with anxiety are the ones who are working two jobs. I mean, what is the point of working two full-time jobs? Uh, Yeah, you're making twice as much money, but you're too miserable to enjoy it. We need physical, mental, emotional, spiritual rest. That's the first reason that God gave the Sabbath. The second reason that God gave the Sabbath sometimes gets overlooked, honestly. Uh, We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15 where we read, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See the connection? This, therefore, this. Who saved the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians? Was it Moses? Was it the people? No, they got themselves cornered and, and checkmated at the Red Sea. And, and suddenly, you know, when, when they've got no place to go and the Egyptians who have been chasing them through the desert are closing in on them, uh, they, they were unable to save themselves. They had nowhere to go. A great leader could have gotten them to that point. The best leader in the world could have gotten them to that point. But no leader in the world was going to get them out of that situation. God is the one who delivered them. They did not deliver themselves. They did not save themselves. God parted the waters, allowing the Israelites to get to the other side, thereby saving the Israelites. And so thus, the second part, of uh, the second reason that God gave us for the Sabbath was to reflect on what God has done to deliver us. 
like the Israelites, you know, you and I, we didn't do anything to save ourselves. And it's so important that we not only acknowledge that, you know, on an intellectual level, but also that we reflect on it regularly, the implications of it. Look what the author of Hebrews wrote. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, Jesus' rest, God's rest, has allowed, has has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. See the connection there? Enter that rest so that no one will fall uh, through following the same examples of disobedience. See, there's a type of rest that we need in which we just stop trying to work to save ourselves. Stop trying to work to be a good person and just simply trust in God's redemptive work in our lives. And the author of Hebrews here is implying that if we don't enter into that rest, we will slip into disobedience. Do you see the connection? Do you see how, how one leads to the other? You know, if, if, if we've got this attitude that we have to work and work for our salvation and we never rest, that attitude will lead to disobedience. Why? What did the people of Israel do? They had vowed to uphold these, these six things. But they didn't just trust. They, didn't just, they, they put their salvation on them and their ability to uphold these six things. They, they failed to simply rest and trust in God's redemptive work. We need to learn how to do that because we have the same tendency. See, here, here's how it works. We, we, we have this, this set. Say, say we've got the, these six things that we vowed we're going to uphold. And then all of a sudden, we break one. Oh, boy. Well, now this is broken. You know? Oh, it's a, don't worry. It's a Richard Simmons uh, VHS tape. So, <laughs> so we got, oh, man, it, it's broken now. Now the whole thing is wasted. So now we may as well you know, just destroy the whole thing. See, what happens is eventually you will break one of those six things. And if you look at it like this, oh, look, a part of it's broken. No need to uphold it now. Because they're just constantly working rather than trusting. But there's also a type of rest that's celebratory and doesn't uh, just reflect on what God has done in our lives in the past, but also what he is continuing to do in our lives. Yeah, we're saved in the sense that we have been forgiven. We've been cleansed of all guilt. Uh, That's what we call justification. But then there's a process of salvation that we call sanctification. That's the process of turning away from sin, learning to walk in holiness, and we're still all in the midst of that part, of that process. Uh, And so in that sense, we're still in this process of being delivered, and it requires that we constantly, continually find time to rest and trust in God's work on a regular basis. That's part of what we do Sunday mornings. Jesus said this, Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, we find this type of rest only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. We don't find it anywhere else. Just coming to him, and that's it. Just come to him. That's the only condition. That's the only requirement. He doesn't say, come to me and and do this and do that and jump through these hoops and jump through those hoops and do some backflips and do all these things, and then I'll give you some rest because you finally earned it. No, he said, just come to me. 
Just come to me and I will give you rest. And if we're doing these things, if we're resting our bodies, if we're reflecting on God's redemptive work in our lives, not only in the past, but in the present, we're fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath. What is it that keeps uh, you know, counselors and psychiatrists in business? Uh, it's not just getting people hooked on medications, really. It's, it, it's more than just physical relief, I believe. I'm convinced that people need to protect their day of rest, yeah, but they also need to feel heard. They also need to feel understood. They need to feel like somebody is, is seeing their life and seeing value in their life. And part of resting, then, is being part of a community where we do that for each other. Look at what Paul said to the Romans. Paul, uh, throughout the letter of Romans, sporadically, Paul would say something about wanting to go and visit them. But why did he want to go and visit them? He asks them to pray, and then he continues with this in Romans chapter 15, verse 32. He says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So he wanted to travel to Rome so that he could find rest. He could have found rest where he was. He could have just taken a day off and just relaxed no matter where he was. No, he wants to find the kind of rest that you can only find in the company of other believers. And listen, we need that too. It's, it's a need. It's a deep-felt human need. And that's one of the reasons, that's another reason that we gather every Sunday to not only remember what God has done and not only to step back and observe what God is continuing to do in our lives today, but also to find refreshing rest by sharing our lives with one another as a community of Christians. Finally, Nehemiah discovers another widespread compromise among the people. He says in verses 23 and 24, In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah. Of course, that's Hebrew he's talking about. But the language of his own people. So again, the problem here isn't so much the fact that they are intermarrying with surrounding nations. They had vowed not to do this, but Eliashib, of course, Eliashib the priest had vowed uh, not to do this, and he had broken that vow, and many of the people had followed suit. The real problem here is not just breaking this vow. The real problem is that it is flagrant disobedience toward God. And that's why. This breaks Nehemiah's heart. You know, if, if I'm watching uh, my son, you know, he, he doesn't take jujitsu or anything, but let's say he's taking jujitsu and somebody's putting him in a chokehold. And I'm like, just let him go. Just please let him go. Yeah. It, it, it's flagrant. It's flagrant. I, I, I want them to just let go. It breaks Nehemiah's heart because he's seeing the pain and anguish that would be in God's heart. You see that? So again, he takes action. Verses 25 to 28. He says, so I contended with them. That's a nice way of say, saying I, I beat them up. Um, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? And yet... Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? 
even one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambalot the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. You know, just like we saw in our lesson last week when Nehemiah uh, saw that Tobiah had moved in to the temple, and so he, he not only threw Tobiah's stuff out on the sidewalk, but he also had the temple rooms cleaned. Uh, this is an action that's symbolic of the same thing, uh, of, of, you know, same thing as, as Christ's judgment against the temple when he came in with a whip and, and cleaned house when he saw the widespread sin in there. It's not about physical cleaning. It's about spiritual cleansing. When Ezra saw the same thing, by the way, the same thing was happening in Ezra's day, when he was overwhelmed with sorrow at the unfaithfulness of the people and the fact that they were intermarrying with other nations, he responded by, by sitting there and pulling out his own hair. He was pulling out hair on his head and hair from his beard. But Nehemiah responds to the, to the unfaithfulness of the people by pulling out their hair. And we might think, wow, that's, that's really drastic. Why would he do that? And honestly, I'm not exactly sure, but there is room for, for speculation here. Uh, maybe what he was doing was pulling off the little ringlets that the men would grow as signs of their devotion to God. Maybe he was pulling those off. Uh, or maybe it's because the law of Moses tells us in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 40, if a man loses the hair of his head, he is bald, he is clean. That makes me feel pretty good about being bald. I don't know. How do you feel, Craig? You know? Now you guys, uh, Gordon, yeah, now you guys know. There, there's like a benefit to it. Yeah, we don't know exactly why, what he was doing, why he was doing that, uh, this particular thing, pulling out their hair, but it's possible that it was one of these two things. Now, again, this isn't an action that we should imitate. This is not something that you need to go around doing. Uh, of course, you can't do it to me, although maybe I need to trim my beard so that you, you really can't. But this isn't an action that we should imitate. It's a picture of taking drastic serious measures against sin. It's a picture of taking war against sin. It's also a picture of the consequences of trying to mix God's value system with humanity's value system. It is impossible. It is impo- you cannot mix God's value system with man's value system. You cannot serve two masters because, as Jesus said, you will eventually hate one and love the other. And God isn't interested in a 50-50 proposition, and he's not interested in sharing space in the proverbial closets of our hearts. In typical fashion, Nehemiah closes this, uh, this narrative, this book, with another prayer. He says, remember them, O my God because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. See, Israel's purpose as a nation, what they were called to do is to glorify God and that's, that's our purpose today as well, to glorify God. But when the primary concern of God's people is not to glorify God, if it's anything other than the glorification and the worship of God, then sweeping, drastic measures must be taken. Our task to continue the ministry that Jesus began of seeking and saving the lost, bringing hope, bringing the hope that only the gospel can bring, that still remains alive to this day. That is still our calling. That's still our purpose. And this, 
is where it starts. By purifying ourselves. By changing the way that we think. By changing the way that we live. By aligning our value system with God's value system. And living out our faith Boldly, taking action against any sin in our lives, refusing to compromise even a little bit with sin. That's the type of life that God has called every single one of us to live. And that is what glorifies him, and that is what catches the world's attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word and for the things that we learn from your word, the illustrations of how seriously you take sin. And so, Lord, my only prayer this morning is that we would refuse to compromise when it comes to sin, that we would adapt an attitude that takes sin very seriously. Lord, we love you. If it were not for your love for us, we could not stand before you. If it were not for your mercy, we would have no chance of spending eternity with you. So we thank you that you sent your son to bridge the chasm that sin had created between you and us. God, I just pray that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit and the conviction of your Holy Spirit to walk in holiness in order that we may glorify you in all that we This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.